You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lithub.com. Part 2 of Paul Holden Graber's Conversation with Salman Rushdie. Isn't it? The wonderful image as well. <laughs> but, but, you know, uh, 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 in a sense also, you know, can one not print in, in the New York Times this be the verse by, by Philip Larkin? I think you can't. I think you can't. Uh, the, I think it's still an embargo that you can't use that word in the New York Times. Um, did you know, by the way, that the, the title, This Be the Verse, is is taken from Robert Louis Stevenson? No. Um, Robert Louis Stevenson... Rosh, Salman, the things you know. I, no, not at all. And I love that poem. Tell me. Uh, well, Robert Louis Stevenson wrote a, a, a poem which he wanted to be his own epitaph, which he wanted to be engraved on his own tombstone. And I believe that, in fact, it is wherever he's buried in the South Pacific. And I'm going to now try and remember it, and I will probably slightly misquote it, but uh, I'll do my best. It went like this. Uh, something like, Under the bright and cloudless sky, dig the grave and let me lie. Gladly I lived and gladly died, 
and I laid me down with a will. This be the verse you grave for me. Here he lies where he longed to be. Home is the sailor, home from the sea, and the hunter, home from the hill. That's where it comes from. You know, so many, it's... Hearing you from memory say this poem is is it makes me think of so many things one of one of them obviously has to do with what what remains the fact that you remember all these poems and it it brings back to 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 mind also a conversation i had with someone we 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 both loved and you knew very well and i knew a little bit and that is christopher hitchens hmm. well christopher has an incredibly retentive memory i mean christopher of the people i've known christopher and martin amis are the two people who really carry around an astonishing amount of poetry in their heads and you could literally turn them on. You can you could point at Christopher and say, Shelley, and he would do like twenty minutes. I know, um, and and he did Larkin, yeah. and you know he just he he just uh, I played for him. I remember an Auden poem, and then he recited another five. Yes, well, I'll tell you a funny poetry story about Christopher. Chris, when, when Christopher Hitchens spoke at. Kingsley Amos's memorial service in London. He told the story about how there was this poem that the newspapers had reported was Princess was Princess Diana's favorite poem, and it was, it was this terrible sort of Hallmark Hallmark card poem, um, which which Kingsley Amos had detested. And the, the poem was was this. It went. Um, I'm going to try and remember this. Um, Oh, I'm going to have to think. Of it. I've just lost it in the in the veil in the in the Robert Louis Stevenson poem. Um, yeah, I'm going to come back to this. I've just lost it. Tell me, so ask me something else. Well, you know, it, it it just it just strikes me that to to carry around all these poems in in your mind yeah. is is a is an art that that isn't Lost. yet. Yes, more or less. I mean, I hate using these words, Salman, because it makes me feel, I don't know, old. But it, it, to learn by heart is not something that we, we do quite as much as, as once upon a time. No, I mean, it used to be a thing that was part of going to school and doing English, English lessons, that you were asked to memorize poetry. And, uh, interesting how much of that poetry kind of sticks with sticks with you you know i mean i i can uh i can still do just about the whole of the walrus and the carpenter um i can do jabberwocky i can do there's a whole lot of stuff that just is in my head uh forever okay the light is shone on you now do one you particularly love of the walrus of the carpenter because it's too long to do the whole of it. Um, the sun was shining on the sea, shining with all its might. It did its very best to make the billows smooth and bright. And this was odd because it was the middle of the night. 
The moon was shining sulkily because she thought the sun had got no business to be there after the day was done. It's very rude of him, she said, to come and spoil the fun. The sea was wet as wet could be. The sands were dry as dry. You could not see a cloud because no clouds were in the sky. No birds were flying overhead. There were no birds to fly. Then the walrus and the carpenter entered. The walrus and the carpenter were walking hand in hand. They wept like anything to see such quantities of sand. If only this were cleared away, they said, now wouldn't it be grand? If seven maids with seven mops swept it for half a year, do you suppose the walrus said that they could get it clear? I doubt it, said the carpenter, and shed a bitter tear. Stop there. It's fantastic, and I'm, I, it, it again brings to mind all kinds of, of, of thoughts. One of them is, these, these poems you know by heart, do, do they pop in your mind at certain moments when you feel you need them? Or do you recite them to yourself at moments, or is this something that you recite to others? No, I mean, it's just, I mean the walrus and the carpenter at this point is just a party trick. But, right. Um, but... Um, I do think that one of the things that happens to, and I think a lot of writers are are, are kind of big are big readers, and so so very often when you're writing your day's work, something you write will remind you of something that you read. Yeah. Uh, and and the thing that you read shines a kind of light on on the sentences you're writing. So. I, mean, I I think it would be very hard to to write without having read a great deal. Uh, the only writer I've ever heard disagree with that was V.S. Naipaul, who I, I once heard him being interviewed um, at the Hay Festival in, in, in the UK, and the interviewer asked him about books that had meant a great deal to him. Uh, or had inspired him. And he said, rather grandly, I thought, and rather wonderfully, <laughs> and he said, I'm not a reader, I'm a writer. And I thought, gosh, that's so impressive that he can say that. Um, I don't know any other writer who's ever separated the act of reading from the act of writing. Do you think he was honest? Yes, I think he probably was. But as we know, when... When Naipaul did talk about books, he he essentially thinks he thought that everybody was awful. I mean, for a start, he thought that he was better than every woman writer that had ever lived. Said so. Um, and and you know, better than all the men as well. I think. <laughs> so it must have been boring for him to read because everybody was so much worse than him. He was self-created. What, what, if I may ask you, what are you, what are you writing for the moment? Oh, I'm just struggling with the beginning of the next novel. Uh, you know, I'm all, I actually do know where it's going now. I wrote, I wrote, um, I mean, like, since, since the beginning of this year, I, I, I wrote, uh, I don't know what, 50, 55 pages, and, and they essentially were written in order to show me what I, to try and create the characters and show me what I was doing. And by the time I'd written them, I understood what I should be doing, and so now I'm writing them again with, with, with a greater sense of confidence in the, in the story. 
but I'm really slow, you know, I'm really slow. It takes me ages. Is there um, a writer that, that you feel now is unknown and needs to be discovered? Oh, gosh. Well, I don't know. You know, it, there's a point at which you do stop reading to keep up. But there may be something that you have discovered that you feel you talk about it, but people don't know. Yeah, well, one of the things I, I worry about in America is that people are reluctant to publish and reluctant to read much work in translation. Yeah. You know, and so by Two, three percent, word, yeah. there's an enormous amount of translation between languages. Um, I mean, somebody told me this, this terrifying statistic, but in America, fewer than 2% That's right. published in a year That's right. were written in a language other than English originally. So, and I think that's just such, an, such a shame for American readers that they don't have available the literature of the world, you know, uh, in, in, a, in their own language. And I do think it's, it is a rather extraordinary moment in world literature because there are great writers all over the place. You know, I think, uh, I mean, oddly, Hungary you know, has had a real glut of great writers in recent years. Like the Nobel laureate Imre Kertes just died, and he's certainly yeah. very well worth reading. And Peter Nadash and Peter Esterhazy. Um, and there are a great, great stock of wonderful Hungarian writers right now. Um, there was a moment at which Poland seemed to be producing great poets all the time, you know, so there's, I think people know about Milos because he lived a lot of his life in, in, um, in Berkeley, California. Um, but as well as Milos, there's uh, Zbigniew Herbert, whose series of poems called Mr. Cogito, I think, are one of the great masterpieces. And, and you know, Adam Zagajewski and etc. So, I mean, I thought one of the great services that the Nobel Committee did some years ago was when they gave the award to Wisława Szymborska. And I had not heard of Wisława Szymborska at the point at which she won the Nobel Prize. And then her work was extensively translated into English. And I realized that this really is a great poet and that they had done us a favor. I, and they don't always... They did, and actually, in many ways, when they gave it to the to the poet Thomas Tranströmer a couple of years ago, yeah. I thought again, that's a genuinely great poet whose name whose name is probably not widely known outside his his native Sweden, and um, should be, and now is. And then this year's Vetlana Alexeyevich. Well, that also was a, a brave decision um, because she's really very very good. Um, and I had read very little of her work, but I mean, it's the first non-fiction award in a very long time. Um, I mean, I don't know if anybody's won the Nobel Prize for not, with a non-fiction work since Winston Churchill, uh, who won it, I guess, for the history of the English-speaking peoples. No, I, I, I think it's, it's extraordinary that they, they, they made that decision. And they also, they also have been in touch with you recently, haven't they, the Nobel people? What, what what do you make of a statement made by them 25, was it 25, 28 years later? Seven years later, they decided. 27 years later. So to condemn the fatwa. Well, you know, 
better late than never. Um, you know, but look, to be fair, I don't, I don't want to get into this really, but the, the, the Nobel Committee almost never makes political statements. I mean, it basically never makes political statements about anything. Um, so for them to do it is, you know, they have to, they have to abandon their normal procedure to do it. And so I guess it took them a while to do that. And better late than never, it is true. Another part of, of, of your, your world, Salman, that I'm particularly interested in always, and you know that, well, two, is not only all the quotations, all the poems, all the literature that accompanies you, but also um, how sensitive your eyes are to great filmmaking. Filmmaking has influenced you, and you've said as much, perhaps as much, if not more, than literature, and continues to. That's true. I mean, I think I, I, think I was lucky to be um, young at a time when world cinema was going through a period of great brilliance. You know? and, and I think it's, it's hard now to, you know, in the age of Netflix, it's, it's hard to explain to people what it felt like when, you know, this week's new movie was Pierrot Le Fou by Godard, and how in the week that followed that, there would be a new movie by Fellini, and the week after that, a new movie by Kurosawa, and the week after that, a new Satyajit Ray movie, and and the week after that, a new Ingmar Bergman movie, and the week after that, a new Buñuel movie. And that these films, which we now think of as the great classics of world cinema, were the new movies, you know? And so I would go, there's, there was a little cinema in Cambridge called the Art Cinema, which, like everything else now, is now it's gone and it's a, it's a coffee shop. You know? um, but I feel that I got a lot of my education in that little room. You know, I remember, I remember going to see Alain René's um, last year at Marienbad, l'année dernière at Marienbad, and being so impressed and also bewildered by it. Yeah. That I went to see it three times consecutive, three performances consecutively, in order to try and understand what the hell was going on. But it was fascinating enough that I wanted to do that. And and, and, and there seeing, were there were places to satisfy that appetite. Yes, I remember seeing you know all the great films, Fellini's you know La Strada and Antonioni's trilogy, you know La Notte, L'Eclisse, La Ventura all in that little cinema. And, and I mean, one of the filmmakers who I think fairly directly influenced my work was Buñuel. And, and seeing The Exterminating Angel, his great film, was one of the big experiences of my life and I think has always affected me. Um, there's a very good story about Buñuel and Charlie Chaplin. Do you know the story? No. Um, that Buñuel had appeared when he was living in Hollywood. Um, and Chaplin was apparently quite interested in the Hispanic community in Hollywood. So one Christmas, he had a dinner for several of the Hispanic sort of filmmakers that were in Hollywood. And, and Manuel went with the actor Fernando Rey, who was the star of several of his films. Um, and there was this very grand dinner table and a huge and 
very elaborately decked out Christmas tree and a great dinner, a great banquet being provided for them. And at some point in the course of the banquet, Buñuel and Fernando Rey decided that as true surrealists, they could not accept the extraordinary formality um, of this event, and they had to do something to disrupt it. And so they, they, they got up very formally and walked to the Christmas tree and took all the decorations off it and arranged them around the Christmas tree and then bowed and left the room. <laughs> I love this. And Buñuel assumed that that was the last he was ever going to say, hear of Charlie Chaplin, that he would never be invited back and he wouldn't be well remembered. Instead, a few days later, he received another invitation to dinner. <laughs> so he went to dinner again. And as he came in, Chaplin said to him, you just come over here for a minute, and took him into a side room. And in this side room, there was a large and very elaborately decked out Christmas tree. And Chaplin said, well, since you seem to have something against Christmas trees, perhaps you'd just like to demolish this one here, and then it won't upset the other guests. <laughs> but you know, also what is, what is magnificent about Buñuel is not only his extraordinary uh, filmmaking, but I think he probably wrote one of the greatest memoirs ever. Yes, yes, Mon Dernier Soupir, my last... Which I love. Yes. Uh, it's a beautiful book. Uh, it, it, uh, it's, during the course of it, he tells the story about how he told his communist friends in, in Spain that he wanted his epitaph to read, Thank God I Die a Communist. <laughs> They all got very shocked by by the first part of, the, of that sentence, and he had to explain to them that it was a joke. It's magnificent. I, it's a book that ages so well. I mean, I've reread it uh, a few times, and it, it somehow never disappoints. I know among the, the the more or less contemporary movies we we both, I think, love to to speak of something that that doesn't go as far back as Buñuel is is Wes Anderson's Buda, Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm. Yes, I think it's a, I think it's a remarkable. Wes is has a style that no other filmmaker has. I agree, and that's something that one can only say of the greatest filmmakers. You know, you could tell a movie immediately of Bergman or Godard immediately. Nobody else makes films like they made, and you can tell a Wes Anderson film without having to read the credit titles. It's it's uh, something to do with, I mean, really with style. What you know, what Proust spoke about when he spoke about l'éthique de l'écrivain, the the particulars that immediately give you a sense that it belongs to them. And and the Grand Budapest Hotel interests me in, in many ways because it also shows Wes as a as a reader in, in, and it, much has been made of the fact that he was inspired by Stefan Zweig, and in a way one can see he was. But he, what he made of it is so original. Yes, anyway, it becomes very much his own. And the, there is a moment in the in the film that I I very much like where passports become so important. Oh yes, no, he's, that's what I like about Wes is that he uses formality. You know, he uses. A lot of his work, people stand and speak very formally, and documents like passports, you know, documentation, all this, all the, the apparatus of the formal world 
becomes the subject of comedy. And, and I think, in a way, there's a kind of deadpan thing in Wes Anderson, which is not unlike Buster Keaton, you know, um, kind of old stone face. Everybody has to be stone-faced while they're being funny. How interesting. Oh, by the way, I remembered the princess. Oh, good. Good, good, good. All right. So. Good, good. We, we, we spoke long enough um, for, for you to remember it and come back to it. I'm so glad. So, the Princess Diana's favorite poem, as quoted by Hitchens at Kingsley Amos's memorial service, <laughs> went like this. Life is mostly froth and bubble. Two things stand in stone. Friendship in another's trouble, courage in your own. Right? Absolutely crappy poem, which, which Kingsley detested. And so he wrote his own version of it, which Christopher quoted at the memorial service. And Kingsley's version went, Life is mostly toil and labor. Two things see you through. Chortling when it hits your neighbor. Whinging when it's you. Gosh. <laughs> Salman, what a pleasure it has been speaking with you. Real, real, real great pleasure. And I, I, I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you very, very much for taking my call. Thank you, Paul. It's been fun. And until soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.